And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three. Hello! It is House of Strauss Industry Talks with the one, the only, Ryan Glassfiegel of the New York Post. How you doing, Ryan? Uh, I am sweating my Badgers right now. They've got like a five-point lead at the um, under four-minute timeout. And if they beat Purdue, I win $1,200 from a $75 bet that I made in December on them to win the Big Ten. <laughs> well, sweating my badger sounds like a disgusting euphemism, number one. Uh, number two, how the hell are you going to focus on what we're about to do right now? Uh, with one eye, maybe even two eyes on ESPN as you track all this. And number well, three, I, what are you going to spend the money on if it happens? You know, I don't think... It, it's tricky because it's not like when you win a bet at a sports book and you get your cash, these apps, as we've talked about, they don't, they're not enamored with winners. Mm. And so when you withdraw profits, it like opens up, uh, like this is not like kind of proven by anybody, but everybody like winners suspect that when you withdraw, you open up kind of like an account audit, Mm. and perhaps limits. So Mm. it's like a $1,200 that's going to like sit there until I just like (laughs) can't let it accumulate anymore. Gambling is a brilliant thing to do with with one's money is the uh, main takeaway there. Um, But a lot of fun. So I I, I quite understand. We'll see if you can multitask. We'll see if it's possible. I I am... uh, just hope like that the Badgers somehow stay on cruise control. Not like that it's been smooth mm. sailing, but like I hope this is not one of those I, back and forth one possession games at yeah. the end. Because I don't know if my content will be as good in that circumstance. Oh, I, I hope not, and I, I I hope you come through. I hope it's not like when Ralph Wiggum's heart breaks in two and Bart Simpson can uh, pause in slow mo at all. We'll see how it goes on the docket tonight. Uh, we've got an interesting little, uh, what do we even call it? A back and forth. LeBron James calling out Bill Orm of The Athletic. I might know a little something about how that all goes, getting called out by a superstar on uh, the superstar potentially leaving. So that is one particular topic. We might be talking a little WNBA uh, controversy. We'll see what the people want. I find it difficult to focus on any of it. Like, you are focused on the Badgers. I a far more virtuous person, one who would just never gamble on sports or just <laughs> concern myself with such a uh, trivialities. Is that how you would even say it? I have no idea. But I keep thinking about Ukraine, man. I keep thinking about this insane situation. And I don't know if people listen to this to get away from all that or if they would actually want to hear uh, foreign policy takes from somebody who is wholly unqualified but interested in the state of the world nonetheless. So I might let – bodies. Mm. What Plural. was that? Plural. <laughs> ah, yes. Ah, yes. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, you know, maybe we'll leave that to somebody who calls in and asks a question, right? We will leave it to a questioner if they want to hear me actually expound on that. I will leave it to them as opposed to pulling them immediately into World War Three. And, of course, there's just a lot going on. There was some interesting stuff that Sports Business Journal put out about the local NBA ratings. The Warriors apparently have twice the ratings, more than twice the ratings of the second most popular team. That was eye-catching to me. I can't remember that ever being so. 
in the history of Sports Business Journal chronicling that. Uh, and we've also got baseball stalled and pissing you off. So there's a lot to get to. But let's start with Bill Oram versus LeBron James. You wrote about it, Ryan. So let's see. Can you watch your Badgers and do an expository, a quick expository on this slightly complicated topic? I can. So, um, you know, it, it's it's been a weird thing. Since LeBron left the Heat for the Cavs, I, um, I, I think everyone has kind of like operated under the assumption that he's like a shadow general manager of the mm-hmm. organizations that for the time being employ him. And so a lot of the moves are made like at his behest, but he's not always the most, you know, far thinking general manager and like teammates fall out of favor with him and he makes hasty moves. Some of the things that he's done have worked though. He won a title in Cleveland. He won a title in the Lakers. I'm not somebody who puts an asterisk on the bubble title. So credit to it goes to him there. But he, um, I think he, he was the one who wanted Russell Westbrook on this team and Russell Westbrook, has fit like to use a parenting analogy <laughs> when you're putting a shoe on a kid that's two sizes too small. Mm. Um, you just can't get your foot in that shoe. And no, it's terrible. So he's just been terrible. It, it's been, I think anybody, a lot of people, it, it's a, it's it's been kind of funny because. Is a very popular consensus take in the NBA media that this was going to be a disaster. So, you know, nobody likes anything better than being proven right. So it's yeah. kind of like compounded the issue for like LeBron making a bad personnel decision. And the Lakers are like floundering on like the border of playoffs when they were preseason like among the title favorites with the Nets. And just don't look like a good basketball team. And at this moment, this is when Jeannie Buss, the Lakers owner, and Rob Polinka, the Lakers general manager, put their foot down and took the keys away from LeBron and said, no, you wanted this team. We're not trading future assets to improve a team that isn't going to win a title with any incremental improvement we make now. And so... Then Bill Oram, I mean, I messed up his name and I apologize. Sounds uh, like the, the Billiam, the kid who OD'd in 21 Jump Street, but you continue. He, he wrote a column in The Athletic basically saying that LeBron and Clutch were in the early days of war with the Lakers front office. Now, putting aside the uh, perhaps inappropriateness of that analogy given the geopolitical circumstances we find ourselves in now that notwithstanding it was something that I think even outsiders could have inferred because like LeBron spent a week praising like the Rams GM for (laughs) trading future assets to improve the team he like had random praise for um, Thunder executive Sam Presti and Cavs GM Kobe Altman and anybody who's paid attention to LeBron interpreted those as veiled shots yeah. at Rob Polinka. You know, he, LeBron he is, always he's 
go ahead. He, he's reaching levels of passive aggression that we never thought possible. That no, we he's been doing this forever. Possible. Remember, like, the fit-in tweets about Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving? He's always been like this. So it just I, I like... just feel like these are some MVP passive aggression numbers from him right now. He's really ramping it up now. So what he does, yeah. he's, he's really savvy when he takes these shots because he does it, and then a writer calls a blue sky blue – and LeBron's like, no, wait a minute. I never said the sky was blue. And so he called out um, the writer and said that he's always negative and, like, roots against the Lakers. And then a few days later, everyone had forgotten about it. And, like, while everyone on the East Coast was sleeping, he just tweets in the middle of the night. I mean, it wasn't that late on the West Coast. It was maybe, <laughs> like, 1130. But it was, like, you know, 1.30 a.m. on the East Coast. He um, tweets that Billerim and I have, like, a long conversation. He's a good guy. Lakers Nation, don't get after him like anybody <laughs> really was. Um, and <laughs> then saying, but, like, I get it. Sources run this game. And, <laughs> he, the, like, what he wrote was false. And so it's, like, really silly because, like, any of the sources that LeBron thinks, like, that would have, like, been actionable from LeBron's camp to like talk to the athletic are people who you know are employed by him in some capacity and like we, everyone knows who LeBron's camp is and so this happens all the time where they say something and it's like uh, actionable to report on and then LeBron's like whoa no no, no, no that's not true so it was like really silly it, it's just um I don't know what the kind of win is and calling him out and then denying it and going through this whole charade when it really does seem like um, his time with the Lakers is running its course and maybe both sides would benefit from a parting of the ways this offseason. So I have a theory. Um, and first of all, I, I used to like Bill Warren, but I, I don't appreciate how he's just taking – my backstory and just doing all the things, all the things I've done, uh, calling out the superstar with one foot out the door, not really calling him out, but describing reality, getting the superstar to call him out in public, uh, then writing a response article in The Athletic about it, uh, in which you're really making waves because you're talking about how agencies are secretly running the league. And that brings me to my take. I wonder if what prompted this bizarre response from LeBron was that a certain omerta was broken as far as he sees it. What Bill Orham did, and I think the most juicy aspect of all of this, is the potential divorce between Clutch and the Lakers. And this thing that has happened, and it's revealed, I think, in, in a quote that you used, uh, you quoted from The Athletic, Rich Paul saying, we have a great partnership with the Lakers. That's an interesting quote from an agent. That's interesting. That That's odd. I mean, maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, except I know too much about it to think so. Uh, Clutch and the Lakers have been a, a team, a tandem. You're seeing that more and more around the league. Everybody knows it about CAA and the Knicks. Uh, fewer people know about it uh, when it comes to the Pistons and Wasserman, because who gives a shit? But the Pistons and Wasserman are uh, a team. You know, they have joined forces. And to a certain extent, Wasserman and the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
this is stuff that for whatever reason fans are not supposed to know about uh the agencies that do this would like to exert their control and exert their influence and push for what they want without it being public information and so that's my theory i think that is that is the live wire that bill Oram perhaps grabbed uh and that is why he's getting such a vigorous pushback versus if he just said yeah you know i think lebron might have one foot out the door um Oh my God! The Wisconsin missed a one and one up three, and then gave up a three with seven seconds left. Now oh, they're geez. shooting to go to to win. Oh, they just made a three off a of buzzer off the backboard. I'm sorry, hi, Jeff. This is fantastic. Actually. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay, but there's still a second left for Purdue to like respond with like a a heave inbound and shot. Ooh. What a ridiculous play by Chucky Upper. All right. So I actually think with this LeBron thing with, and clutch, it's a little bit like a princess bride scenario where he's like evaluating which cup has the poison in it. And it's like, mm. does clutch want us to know that they control this or do they not? Do they want us to know or do they <laughs> not? Do they want us to know? Do they not? They would want <laughs> us to think that we don't know, but so you just go back and forth. Um, on on that, I do, you know, because I don't think that they want to operate with the subtlety that some of these other agencies might want to. They, they want to be a powerful brand. I don't think they want Laker fans assuming that they run the team when the team's not doing well. I don't think they want to do that. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I, I skipped over in my summary. He did, like, they, they um, orchestrated the trade for Anthony Davis that... Really, like when you have those two of like the top, I don't know, eight or 10 players in the league, I don't maybe wouldn't put Davis there now, but I think when they made the deal, you could characterize him there. Um, That really opened the door for them to win that bubble championship. And so it that and that that is like another clutch player. And I mean, he really just made it impossible for New Orleans to trade him anywhere else. And um, so yeah, they, they did work clutch and Polinka and Jeannie bus and early on magic Johnson did all work together and they won a title for it. But now it's the second year in a row that they're lackluster third year out of four with LeBron. And we've talked about before how he's like a slash and burn farmer and we're at the burn phase of his cycle. Yeah. And so, um, I, it's weird that he lashed out at the writer like that because you'd think that he would just kind of you remember the first what time that he left Cleveland well, and he had that just like emotionless game well, against let's, the Celtics. I, I, I'm going to continue with my clutch theory because let's think about it. Think about it from the clutch perspective. Clutch is an incredible story, by the way, that they found this space nobody else was using of making an agency almost a lifestyle brand, understanding that these agencies are run by uncool people. They have uncool names. Let's use the cachet of LeBron combined with his leverage to just formulate an agency that players want to be a part of for the brand, kind of this rebel agency, like people would like the Raiders or whatever, right? Um, brilliant move. I, I want to go on a quick tangent that mm. it's really impressive what Rich Paul and Maverick Carter have done in their respective businesses. Paul as an agent and Carter 
in the media business because like to your point, leveraging LeBron's cachet to build these really like wholly sustainable ventures that just print money for yeah. their stakeholders. Um, you know, these are people that like LeBron was friends with out of high school and all we had heard for like 25 years about athletes and they're like, to use Phil Jackson's word, posses, were that they are like, and even like an entourage, like when, to, so it's not even just like a black or white thing. Um, well, well, Adrian, one Adrian Wojnarowski, who I may have written about, completely crushed them for, for doing this um, in, you know, let's say language that he would not want exhumed. Um, but yeah, it was doubted and they have done really well and clutch has done really well. But now we look at the clutch project, a project that is near and dear to LeBron's heart, certainly. And what are they coming off of this Ben Simmons disaster, right? Where yes, he gets traded to the team, but he has been fined all this money. It's been an embarrassment. Uh, people looking around the league are wondering, wait a second, your your agent is not protecting you from those sorts of fines. Maybe have me represent you. That's happening. And now the Lakers are this disaster. And if it's understood or believed that it's a clutch curated disaster, um, and yes, clutch did deliver the weird bubble championship and did bring Anthony Davis using its influence. It wouldn't have happened without him. And that's part of why this is a complicated issue. Sometimes doing these deals with the devil can work. But right now, Clutch is suffering some bad PR, and I think that's perhaps incentivizing. Yeah, it, the but deal with got... the devil always yeah. comes true, comes um, due, and this yeah. is the fourth time that that has happened with LeBron and an organization. It's just cyclical. Yeah, well, we've got JF, and we are not insinuating that LeBron is the devil, but maybe JF will to spice things up. JF, JF out of Canada. How you yeah. doing? Yeah, what's up, guys? Hey. Uh, so a, a couple points to add to um, one, it was that New Yorker interview th- that was that profile of Rich Paul last uh, last oh, year with, with one Isaac Chotner. Yes, yeah. exactly. That, you know, he uh, the journalist catches him saying we when he's referring to the Lakers. Right. Which mm-hmm. is very bizarre. And he included that in the piece. And secondly, when Phil Jackson, like the biggest insult that Rich Paul and Mav Carter ever had was one. Phil Jackson called them uh, LeBron's posse, right? Mm. That just undermined, you know, their contributions to LeBron's empire. And of course, I do admire LeBron giving them, you know, empowering them, but I don't like how they've conducted business. And I was just curious, I listened to your episode with Spike and, you know, he burned, you know, Clutch has kind of burned the bridge there. Uh, Yeah. Daryl Morey in Philly, he's done it in New Orleans, and now he's doing it with the Lakers. So I'm thinking, and of course, you know, uh, Adam Silver has allowed them to kind of control uh, foreign offices and dictate player movement. So I'm just like curious, where do you think this goes uh, long term? Is there going to be a pendulum swing back? And what kind of influence will Clutch have uh, post LeBron? Well, that's a great uh, you question. You go first, Ethan. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I can predict that. Uh, they, I mean, they're they're a very <laughs> impressive and also sleazy operation in some ways. They hired Andy Miller, who is quite capable, uh, smart, and also uh, has been in trouble with the law and is technically not allowed to represent players, even though people 
think he perhaps is running clutch day to day. Some people would think that. I'm trying not to get sued over here. Technically, he's allowed to represent coaches, but Andy Miller was brought in to, to bolster the operation. Here's what my guess would be, JF. I would think there is going to be more expansion, more gains, more growth, and then it will all blow up somehow in some way I couldn't even fathom. That That's my best guess. It, it seems like that is what they are built to do, especially after LeBron either retires or fades out. There just seems to be an inherent instability, and one day it will make for a great 30 for 30. That's my guess. Uh, I think there's probably something, too, that Bill Simmons report that LeBron is – um, and probably through the Fenway group where he owns part of like the Red Sox and Liverpool and a couple other teams um, is going to gun to do an expansion franchise in Las Vegas. And it wouldn't be astonishing if Rich Paul is a part of that and clutch becomes not this like LeBron centric thing, but just the basketball arm of UTA. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing we didn't mention is that they partnered with a major, you know, like a major agency. But yeah. And yeah. So I don't think people realize this. I think I've talked about it before, but um, CAA, UTA, and WME, between them, they represent an enormous proportion of athletes, coaches, sports broadcasters, <laughs> sports reporters and Hollywood actors and news media. And so um, I think that they, and then like you also get into like Wasserman slash Montag group as a fourth, but probably on a little bit of a different tier than those other three. And so it's um, like just the, the, um, the vertically integrated um, influence that these agencies have is going to be like difficult to disrupt in any capacity. Yeah. Well, and it's getting dirtier. I was going to add, because I just know other people in sports media and we're just talking writers, not even people on TV mm-hmm. who are being aggressively courted by some of these player agencies, because that's all becoming part of the game now to have that level that level of Pravda influence in a certain sphere. And, you know, I was thinking, is there, sorry, my dog wants to go out now. Um, is there going to be a detanglement of this? Like, will there be a kind of a David Stern-like commissioner that comes in after post-silver, maybe gets ousted and says, enough of this. Like, we need to have boundaries between these different groups. Because, A, like, with uh, that conversation you had with Spike, I was thinking... You know, it, it, obviously, I don't think he's a fan of Clutch. Uh, and I'm a Toronto Raptors fan. I don't want the players on the Raptors to be Clutch clients, right? That's kind mm. of a bad thing is from a fan perspective. Um, and now the, you know, front offices are probably kind of begrudgingly have to deal with them. Like, they don't look forward to dealing with them knowing what yeah. uh, their MO is. So uh, do you foresee there's eventually comes a, you know, you, you mentioned a giant blow up, but somebody... Uh, kind of a major uh, judge <clears throat> and what were the referee who comes back and, you know, creates, uh, you know, fixes there the should chaos. Be. There should be. But I think one of the lessons that Adam Silver learned from David Stern was never make a decision before you have to. Um, and maybe that's a good lesson in some 
respects, but I, I do think it's informed a lot of the perspective of Silver who might be looking at this and just thinking, well, maybe the agency starts fucking up of its own accord and, you know, players turn against it and I never have to make a hard choice and I just don't want to make a hard choice. It does seem like somebody should have erected some boundaries and that includes the media itself. I, I always say, and perhaps call me naive, call me whatever, it's crazy to me that the media members who are repped by the same agencies as the people they're reporting on just don't disclose it. I mean, I know, look, I, it's not going to be any crusade that I fight. I know it's not important like politics is, but just as a basic ethical disclosure, it seems like something that should happen. So, yeah, I, I don't know if there's enough pressure. I mean, to bring up, I'm just free associating here. Maybe the reason this isn't happening is that normally you'd have some media pressure pushing that forward, but the media is too corrupted by this to do that. Uh, yeah, they, they, it, it works out for the media members because everyone in this world is trying to maximize their own income and relevance. And, this is like a marriage of those two. And if it just means not disclosing something, which is like a rule that doesn't get enforced by the media organizations who ostensibly do journalism, um, it just like there, there's the, the incentives are misaligned and on anyone blowing the whistle on it. Great. And and I want to all hang up, but I have one quick question uh, before I do, because I mm. saw, Ryan, you actually tweeted about this. So uh, the adoption of the Elam ending, uh, you know, is that, you know, foreseeable in for the NBA? Do you think they'd actually do it? Because the end of games are absolutely horrible. And, you know, the, uh, you know, it was demonstrated over the weekend. And the NBA has a you know horrible problem where you know a close game is going to be excruciatingly painful uh, for you know ninety percent of it. And you mean you don't like an endless procession of free throws and timeouts? <laughs> oh, kind <laughs> of impure <laughs> basketball mind, are you? It's, it's it's absolutely crazy. And I used to go to Raptors games with uh, one of my friends who's like very casual. And you know the Raptors won by a blowout. And he, he looked at me. He's like, "Oh, great! You know they won big, so we don't have to like deal with the end of the game stuff." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think it's possible that they do adopt it. Maybe even probable. I can't sit here and say that they will, but I think the fact that they've included it in the All Star game and have started to kind of introduce it and make people realize how much better it is. Uh, I, I think that it has a decent chance at catching on. Let, let's give the NBA a little credit too, because I often criticize, but I think Evan Wash, who has come up with some of these novel ideas and reforms, um, deserves some credit. Uh, the play-in tournament, I think, largely has gone over in a, positively in the Elam ending in the All-Star game. And I think they've shown that at least when it comes to the gameplay, that might be a risk that they'll take when they're avoiding some of these harder issues that you mentioned earlier. Crickets. Right. Complimenting but, the uh, NBA really clears out the room. You know, it's, uh, but yeah, uh, but <laughs> Ryan. 
Let, let's talk. Uh, I want to do this WNBA story. Size, which is why are we both? Why do we both have WNBA on the brain? By the way, I'm writing WNBA for tomorrow, but uh, which I, I don't even know. It's like it, something has seized the control of me, and I feel the need to. And and you've I got think WNBA. This might be a brain. rare thing we disagree on. Ooh, I like it. Okay. So I'll I'll summarize the story and then you give your thoughts first on it. Okay. Uh, so, Sports Illustrated Howard Megdahl, who covers women's sports, uh, wrote today. He he reported pretty big bombshell. Um, so Joe Sy owns the Nets, also owns the New York Liberty. He bought them for somewhere between ten and fourteen million dollars. Side note is like way lower than you might think off the top of your head and a WNBA franchise is worth a few years ago. And this guy is a co-founder of Alibaba. He's worth an estimated like $9 billion. He just bought $157 million apartment in Brooklyn in July. Very wealthy. Um, might be a CCP functionary, but continue. Yeah. Uh, I, Maybe, probably. Um, who's to say? Who's uh, to say? The, but, so, he did a couple of things um, flaunting, like, WNBA rules last season with the Liberty, where he, he, like, his wife took the team on a trip to Napa and, like, you know, just rolled out the red carpet for them, like, nice, relaxing weekend in wine country. Ethan country. Nice. And, That's what they call um, it. More, more um, impermissibly for the WNBA, he had the unmitigated gall to um, fly the players on charter flights for half the year when the league's collective bargaining agreement stipulates that that's a competitive advantage and the players must fly commercial. Mm-hmm. And so what you've got is like a bunch of like tall people flying in coach um, which is like, and, and a, the WNBA salary cap is like 1.1 or 1.3 million for the entire team. It's like really low. So like these players have to like, if they want to fly first class, they have to like pay that out of their own pocket. And that adds up. And again, these are people who are over six feet tall. And so the WNBA like went through this like ridiculous, charade of threatening to like dock the Liberty a bunch of draft picks and even banish the franchise forever before settling on a half a million dollar fine, which would be like fining me like five bucks. Mm. <laughs> so it is just like the, the um, it, it's like kind of insane. There's this like divide between the, the WMEA, like half the teams are profitable a little bit. And half of them lose money and the owners kind of think of it as a charity. But they, they're trying to like control costs because all their revenue is kind of as like a throw in in NBA TV deals and sponsorship deals. I actually think over the long run that it's going to become a much more attractive like economic proposition. But for now, the, the league, let's say it loses money. Yeah. And so the owners don't want like one you know, billionaire coming in and treating all the players better because in a league where the salaries are capped at a million dollars, you're therefore going to go choose it, the player that treats you well. Yeah, 
and it they was can't the case, out, by no the way. No one can outbid anyone. You talk to GMs who were in the NBA when they started shifting from commercial to flying charter. It was a major free agency advantage. That's real. It's a real thing. Um, and so I know that there was this overwhelming response uh, as with people in NBA Twitter of, you know, how dare, how dare, you know, you, you sanction Joe Psy and sanctions. I mean, if, if you violate the CBA, you violate the CBA and uh, it's a competitive advantage. I guess it seems a little harsh, but uh, I don't know. Those are the rules as it's agreed to. I well, think it some didn't of wind we- up being harsh. I mean, they wound yeah. up not a slap on the wrist would be like way overselling what they ended up punishing yeah. him with. Yeah. But the idea of there, there was this emotionality of just let, let it slide. Let Joe treat them to a nice time was kind of the vibe. I was. Well, I, I think it's more that the, the CBA that they, they can't get away with this, with these conditions for much longer in the world I, that we're I living do in. I do want to well actually you on the height thing because the the average height of a WNBA player I want to do it but it I'm looking at conflicting reports I'm seeing six foot in one place I'm seeing five nine in another that seems too short I mean it's not NBA players is all I'm saying it can't no no it's not it's not like Shaq sitting in coach (laughs) yeah I'm um, just saying you know so okay Liz Cambage has it rough yeah and she was she complained about it when we talked about it a month ago or whatever when she was um ripping the Becky Hammond salary. But um, I, you know, I also, I think that WNBA is about to be behind the eight ball to um, open up some of these like player amenities because Mm. they're not paying them a lot. And a lot of these players supplement their income pretty heavily in Russia. Yes. In many cases, making more there than they make in the WNBA. Like Diana Taurasi infamously spent a season only playing in Russia and skipping the WNBA yeah. because they pay so much more there. And, and that Russian oligarchs, to go away. Yeah, Russian oligarchs, for whatever reason, seem to really be into it, to say nothing of whatever the appetite is there. And given the international situation, I mean, who the hell knows what that's going to be in a few months or how, how long-term it all is. But yeah, I think it's a great point by you. I think that there's almost just not enough there, there's perhaps not enough incentive to keep this thing going if it remains so miserable. And it's a, it's a real issue if the NBA is to keep it going. But then you just get to the fundamental problem, which is a lack of interest. And you're not supposed to say it. You're not supposed to say it in media. You're just not supposed to say it, that there's a lack of interest. It's the people who are wrong whenever it fails uh, or whenever there's lack of interest or it wasn't promoted enough or the NBA didn't do enough. Um, And to be fair, the NBA has taken responsibility to a degree for the league. And I'm writing about that for tomorrow, but you've got, you've got to, to what you're saying, it's, I don't know if it's an intractable problem, but it's a tricky problem. The NBA, I believe wants to continue the WNBA. It's not providing enough. Yeah. Yeah. They want to do that, but they're not providing a good enough living and lifestyle uh, for these WNBA players. So I, I kind of do agree with you that they're going to have to make it better if they want this thing to continue to exist because otherwise it's going to fold, I think, and people will find different things to do because it's not worth it. At the same time, I do think the players who are 
who are complaining have a hand in the league not being as popular as maybe it should be. You never see these criticisms in media, but a lot of the WNBA players are even worse than the NBA players when it comes to relating to the fans. Whenever you read, or maybe not whenever, but the majority of the time that you're reading a story about a WNBA player speaking out, it's often uh, harshly critical. It's just exuding I think an angst and unhappiness that doesn't seem to be, I don't know that inviting, I would say. And it goes right into the advertising as well, where the only problem with the WNBA is that you're not watching it. That's the advertisement for the WNBA. Uh, That's an actual slogan. I mean, that's not, that's not really a league that's looking honestly at itself and wondering, do we need to do something beyond taking care of players better? Uh, Because even if, you know, there are, honest conversations that media people might not want to have about why the NBA is more popular, but there theoretically is a way to do better. And the WNBA is not doing that is what I would say. Well, you know, I guess this is a situation where I'm a little biased because I live in Chicago and the sky just won the title. And oh, I thought you were going to play father of daughters card. I was kind of, um, I look, I think my little, my younger daughter is going to be able to hit a softball, basketball, maybe not. But um, the, I, I actually, I don't think that this is like about being like a girl dad though. Like I went to a sky game and it was packed and had a really lit atmosphere. Mm. It's WNBA finals. So it should be, and it should have a lit atmosphere, but um, I, you know, they're, they they don't do the league a lot of final a lot of favors putting like the finals up against Sunday NFL football like so you <laughs> have like Chicago Sky going head to head with Bears Packers um like just that's not a situation for no. like optimizing viewership to put it up against like the most popular show on TV um well, and I get it like ESPN has the rights and they have a real hard jigsaw puzzle to manage um, in the fall with, with all of their football and even baseball inventory. But um, it was not the optimal circumstances for maximizing viewership on TV. I, but like, I mean, I, I do think though, look, it, is the WNBA as popular as the NBA? No, of course not. But with women's sports, you can add up a bunch of events, like take the women's final four here, um, USWNT and the World Cup there, and you get 30, 40 dates a year where these games are drawing in the millions of viewers. And we're in such a fragmented media environment that these are like legitimate TV properties. Like, I mean, the, I wouldn't, I I would disagree with you. I wouldn't conflate them. It seems for whatever reason, and we could try to figure it out that when you add patriotism uh, to the situation, uh, women's sports are just hugely popular and mainstream that if it's Olympics, if it's world cup, women's world cup, uh, it's very mainstream for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to have happened when it comes to league level. Uh, I think the closest I can really think of would be women's final, women's final four. Uh, which yeah. That, and that, to... But like the quality of play in like the Yukon Arizona game or whatever, um, like the, the, I, I think that the, the 
quality of basketball is going to improve on like a really continue improving on like a really sharp trajectory that these are going to increasingly feel like um, high stakes athletic competitions. And Mm -hmm. I think they already feel like that now, but the quality of play is really going to rise in my like kind of hypothetical projection. I just think they need to know their value proposition. And that means being very much unlike the NBA. If you're not going to beat them on quality of play, you need to be like college basketball and have a very different thing and have, uh, I know they have fewer games and even more scarcity. Uh, They need to be more inventive. And I think they've suffered just like they've benefited from being propped up by the NBA. They've suffered from being a subsidiary that just kind of goes through the motions and imitates what the NBA does. They need to differentiate themselves. And I apologize. I apologize to any listeners who didn't expect an entire conversation from us on how to potentially re uh, reform the WNBA, but we never quite know uh, where we're going when we do these things. And of course, anybody by all means drop in and uh, ask any potential questions uh, that are on your mind. Um, What did you think Ryan about the revelation? I think it's an underrated revelation that, that the warriors, uh, the local team for me are twice as popular in their market as any other team is locally, the second place, uh, the second place, I think it was Cavs, are uh, less than half of what the Warriors draw locally, despite the Warriors having a, an announcing team that many people revile. Do you think that's a sign of strength for the league, weakness, or just very odd? And uh, what, do you, what do you take from that? What if it came... So I've heard a story about this happening in radio um, mm. where the um somehow like an employee of like one of the stations in town got their hands on like being a Nielsen um sample person and all of a sudden like their ratings for the quarter like they got greedy with it mm. and they were always had the station on and just dominated in an, in a way that made no sense what if like Joe Jacob and the Warriors figured Ooh. out a way to like get the Nielsen box in like a couple like because it would Light only years. take like one or two households to really skew the regional numbers on these samples. I I wouldn't put it past them pulling something tricky. I do think it's real though. I just think Steph Curry's box office. Uh, the Warriors have been struggling of late. But Steph Curry resonates, I think, more so than any NBA player and. I think between the Do you think he resonates because he like obviously what he does is just like insanely cool. But he also doesn't have this like chip on his shoulder and he doesn't have this like constant flow of negative vibes. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, granted, the next interesting thing he says will be the first, but um as exciting as he is to watch play he's that boring to as a speaker but yeah um, well it's the whole thing and it's that he does not change in teams all the time and i think this is i almost sound like some sort of uh pastor preaching abstinence and saying that you'll you'll ruin yourself if you uh have multiple partners or whatever but the sheen does come off when players go from team to team to team you become a man without a country uh, in the way that maybe Oscar Robertson isn't 
particularly beloved by anyone fan base or Wilt Chamberlain. I'm just trying to pull names out of a hat right now. I think Shaquille O'Neal kind of did it right and transcended it somehow where he's just beloved everywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the LeBron chapter, we were talking about him earlier. It's weird. It's just kind of weird. It's like, it's not even Godfather three. It feels like Godfather five. Uh, it doesn't even exist, but if it did, it'd be gross. Uh, it's just not a good vibe. And uh, that there's a guy who has been on one team and we associate him with that brand. I feel like Darren Ravel saying it whenever I say that word. I think really. It's helps. not just him. They've kept Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. Yeah. And Steve Kerr there as well. Like it's it's been a whole core of continuity. Uh, granted, yeah, Thompson has had his injuries, but it's back now. And I don't. I don't understand why the Nets would be favored to win the title over the Warriors. Um, I know, yeah, anybody can get injured, but it seems to happen in the postseason more with um, with like Irving. Like he, yeah. he gets hurt in the playoffs he, all the he, time. I mean, he had a very restful uh, season, uh, obviously, and. Um... And by the way, one and triumphed over <laughs> over the. No, Wolves not yet, not yet. Their rule well, yeah. still doesn't let him play, but they're, it's, it's amazing. So, so that they're gonna have to change it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he will eventually win this latest iteration when the State of the Union. And I don't know anything coming out of the State of the Union other than you know everybody's maskless. Uh, they're trying to declare the whole thing over. Uh, you know, it just seems like yeah they they're... they got polling advice to just declare victory and move on, and <laughs> yeah. they just did. And it's like I didn't know that that was possible. I do want to talk real quick before we take these calls from John and Yu Yang about the people who just seem like to miserably like want COVID forever and masks forever. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of one in particular, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. You you can name him. I don't think you. Well, I don't. I, I I will. I will say. I I've met Bruce Arthur. He was uh is a very nice person when I met him, and he has done uh a, a, a great. He's done great sports journalism in Canada. But I am not with him on the COVID on the COVID issues, and it does seem neurotic. It seems like it's bent towards trying to control people beyond reason. Uh, today, I can't call up what the tweet was, but he was wishing that there was some sort of uh, digitized uh, system for seeing who was vaccinated and who wasn't. I don't want to unfairly summarize. No, this. I think he wanted like the vaccine cards to be like driver's licenses. And yeah. So everyone oh, yeah. has physical ones that you have to use forever. Yeah. And... It's like, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just crazy. We don't need that. That's crazy. That's I know he lives in a different country. We live in our own country. But just for the sake of having a Western liberal democracy, uh, when we know that for Omicron, that it's not inhibiting transmission uh, to any great degree, um, just no, that's just, we, we need to, we need to get back to real life. <laughs> we can't be doing that. That's crazy. But I, what, what I haven't heard from any of these people, and there are a lot of them, although they've proven to be outnumbered, um, is what are the parameters where you're okay with going back to normal life? Because, yes. um, there, there's just doesn't like, are we supposed to wear masks for the rest of our lives? Like, let's say COVID 
is endemic and it's like the flu where every year there's a COVID season. Does that mean from like November through March at least? And by the way, he's complaining about getting rid of them now. Um, Does that mean like that we just have to do this forever? And like, do we need a lifetime subscription to Pfizer plus masks every year for the rest of our lives? Or what is the threshold if there is one where you're comfortable returning to what it was like before March of 2020? Yeah, you asked that question and there was no response. When you asked this question of people who are hand-wringing about the uh, dropping of restrictions, there often isn't a response of what it's supposed to look like. And at that point, I stopped fucking listening. You know, if you can't articulate to me at what point things are normal, um, what are your benchmarks for that? Then <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. You know, we, we've, we, we've had enough and uh, it seems to be going in a certain direction. And it is remarkable to me. And maybe I should have some empathy for People have been quite traumatized by, uh, you know, fear over this thing. But when they're trying to control what other people do, I start to draw the line. And it seems the the nicest way I could say is creepy. (laughs) Like, I don't I don't need I don't feel this need to control what other people do to the degree that some other people happen to who are represented among media folks on on Twitter. All right, John, what's up? Let's call him up. John, John, John. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Hey, guys. Um, so uh, I was thinking about um, the agent talk you guys were having before. And uh, it made me think of the Simmons Harden trade and how James Harden doesn't have an agent. Mm. And, uh, I'm just wondering, and I'm watching, I kind of have the Mavericks-Lakers game on in the background here. And I'm wondering, like, why does Luka Doncic have an agent? Yeah. Whatever he wants. Yeah. Well, I think for a variety of reasons. One is, you saw, uh, James Harden got crushed uh, in a way by media that I felt was inordinate and unusual. And even tainted the view of the trade, which it looks like a home run for the Sixers. Um, and that was not the word you were getting from a lot of media people because one guy was rep by a powerful agency and the other guy didn't have an agent. So maybe one of the reasons why you have an agent is just to get more positive coverage from media people trying to suck up to that agent. Or so even less negative in the sense of omission. Yes, exactly. So that is one aspect of it. Um, but to your point, yeah, you, you don't necessarily need one. Um, I think the best aspect of having an agent is just that you don't have to be in the room for your own negotiation because, uh, that's hard on the ego sometimes and it's hard on the emotions. Uh, yeah, but it's like for to his point for a player like Donkic, well, that's what I'm saying. Um, it's, it's just slotted. Yeah. He's going to yeah. make the max for the next 12 yeah. years. You can pay a lawyer like five grand, uh, to just look over the contract for you. And, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. well, there's also, like you know, PR. these agents can also be something of like a universal concierge service. Like, Hey, yeah. get me tickets to Adele, at in Vegas, I want good tickets, make it happen. And then they go and do it well, either through their connections or they just do the administrative work to buy it. Like there's all sorts of things like that, that can come up and th- just like 
calling on them for like life advice because you're in your young 20s, you're making more money than God. And this is like a person who works for you that you can call on for, you know, services not pertaining to the dotted I's and cross T's of a contract that really like they don't have any say over negotiating. Yeah, I think at this point, uh, the main uh, advantage is that they'll get you to a team and do that ugly process of helping you force your way out. Um, And also they will mitigate the negative coverage uh, about you. And in a way that when you're a max level player and it's a no brainer, maybe those those two are more important than the actual the actual negotiation that, that really doesn't exist. So, I mean, that's that's the best I can come up with. I mean, the other one is. Because people ask me, and sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder if it's just inertia, and people like saying they have a guy, and they're willing to pay. Uh, they're, they're willing to pay for a lot of it. And I, I see that even on a lower level in media. I see a lot of people in media who have agents who I don't think should have agents, who are not on the level of needing an agent. But people like saying they have an agent. It's something they like saying. Yeah, that. I'd yeah, like to. I, have I still agent. don't get it. It seems expensive to me. But <laughs> I'm with you. I don't have an agent. Well, I had a book agent, but see, you kind of. Well, no, no, no. I'm now. I'm digressing. Thanks so much, Sean. Let's take a question from Yu Yang and anybody else who wants to come up to the queue and ask a question. Yu Yang. Hey. Hello. Hey, uh, hey. Hello. You know, I'll get to straight to my question. Uh, it might be a stupid question, so if it's stupid, just uh, just you know, politely brush me off and then go to the next caller, kind of a thing or next topic, right? Um, I really want okay. to hear your take about. I really want to hear your take about this. Um, it has to do with gender, and I, I love I love how you guys kind of uh, break things down. So I want to hear uh, either one of your your, your point your take on this, right? So mm-hmm. I'm looking I'm looking uh, at I'm looking at your callers, right? And I'm looking at avatars. Yeah. I know you like to look at avatars, right? And week after week, it's very ma- very male. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So this is my yeah. question, right? Why do you think men like to talk about sports so much? It's like it's it's really it's really like our, uh, I don't know what it is like it's catnip like you know like um like what's his name mm. um uh, Klosterman talks about this how like when he goes to dinner dates with with his wife like a like as a couple that like he he can always fall back and talking about sports with the with the with the guy he just knows the guy can probably talk about sports I don't know if you have any take about mm. that or if it's a stupid question I'll just hang up and no I, I think guys. it's oh. a I think it's a great question. Um, okay. Why do men like sports so much? I mean, it's just one of these things that I love questions like that, where we just take it as a given and we're very used to it. Um, here's what I know. I know that there it's true of every country on earth. Every country on earth, men are more into sports than women are. Uh, and gambling as well. Sports gambling is really when you get a, a huge gender split there. Um, and it seems like the long tail, as they say, like the super duper crazy fans it gets even more male at that level where maybe it's 70, 30, 70% male to female for NBA fandom. But you start looking at who follows Woj on Twitter. Uh, it's a, by Woj's own metrics. When he sent out that resume to agents, it's 93% of the people who follow Adrian Wojnarowski are male. And you'll see similar results for other NBA newsbreakers. Um, why? Uh, why do men like sports? I think there's something to the idea that it's simulated war. So maybe it's a way for us to experience some sort of uh, uh, 
testing of our metal in this parasocial way without actually having to die. And that's very appealing. Uh, maybe there's an element of just liking the pure physics of whatever is happening that has appealed to men more for whatever reason. Um, no, the, it's a great question because it's very fraught, I guess, in a lot of media spaces and you're not supposed to think about it and you're not supposed to talk about it. Uh, but yet it's, it's interesting. Do you have any thoughts on it, Ryan? It's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it is odd. It is odd the degree to which uh, we're into watching other people do stuff. I also think there's an, an element of like renting kind of what other people are doing, like renting the self-esteem of somebody doing this cool job that you wish you had. And you see that not just in sports, but you see that in a lot of TV shows that appeal to uh, women as well, that people like watching people do a job they wish they had. So let's, Good have, points. let's have Kumar come up to the stage. Kumar. Hi, uh, can you hear me, guys? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, uh, amazing. Again, a nice hosting, guys. A nice uh, topic. Uh, I was with a, a topic about uh, WNBA and the NBA. We all know that the NBA is the, the best basketball league in the world. Can WNBA do the same thing, you know, call themselves the best basketball league in the mm. world and women's and show that as a, a way to bring in? Because I've seen it's always better to do it that way rather than telling, you know, you're missing something. You oh, know? did I just and, save uh, the WNBA? Can can they perhaps engineer? I don't want to be glib about the horrific war that's happening. I don't want to be glib about it. But I do wonder if they can maybe channel some of that awkwardness into more interest as who's the better league? Is it the American League? Is it the Russian League? God forgive me for being so glib about this horrific crisis, but I just did have a Darren Ravel moment right there. The um, I, think- I, I, I think that they um, – I don't know that branding themselves as the best would be um, – would matter. I think that they just need to um, – I don't know. They, they – I, I – they they have to figure out a little bit like what the MLS is doing, the way they've gotten these rabid crowds out of nowhere in like the Pacific Northwest and a few other markets. Um, it they gotta they they what they should do if I were advising them, I would say like make it so that people families can get into those games for so cheap and develop an affinity with the product from experiencing it live. Um, because if they can, if they can have audiences consistently that are really, really super into the game and packed in the buildings that translates into the television product. I think that's a good, that's a good, yeah. Do you have anything else, Kumar? Yeah. uh, I just wanted to know, um, is it also a good way to market the product a la formula one, do a behind the scene, you know, Ah. amongst the teams? Well, because it, would be, it would be and, if they see that's the thing they haven't had this. Uh, I guess Candace Parker is really dynamic, but they haven't had uh, somebody who like really kind of crosses over and becomes popular in the broader non-sports obsessed society yet. 
I would like to watch a hard knocks type behind the scenes that actually didn't pull punches of the WNBA personally. There's Kumar, no way it would get presented honestly. Though it, it would not like, be but asking for it. this to exist is asking for a version of it that we won't end up enjoying. Maybe it's desperate times. Maybe they, maybe they got to do it. Uh, thanks, Kumar. Let's have Scott call Scott up to the floor. Scott, Scott. Hey guys, there. can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hey, uh, wanted to chat Adam Silver because I think it, it ties in with a lot of topics that have come up today and before uh, of late, like, you know, say the Ben Simmons saga. Um, but I guess first to contrast him with Roger Goodell, who gets a lot of, I think, well-deserved criticism for a lot of the things he's done. Um, but, you know, what people counter with for him is, hey, he's basically – the mouthpiece of the owners. He kind of steps in the line of fire for them. And I actually do kind of get that, right? Like there's probably value to him taking a lot of the flack, but then say that that is the case. Like why, why is silver so pro player uh, when he's, he's supposed to kind of be the representative of the owners. Well, I think the Donald Sterling, you know, these people are human beings and positive media coverage to somebody who's mostly been in the shadows as he was up until 2014 is intoxicating. I'm not saying it was intoxicating for him. I don't know his psyche, but I would have to imagine it was. And it was in contrast to David Stern. This guy is going to do what the players want. He's going to be pro player. He kicked Donald Sterling out of the league. Now, it was a misreading of the situation in a way because he almost learned the wrong lesson. One of the reasons why people enjoyed when he kicked Donald Sterling out of the league was it wasn't just about banishing the hated racist owner. It was a sense that there was order, that somebody was in charge, that people would be held to account. Uh, People respond well to that kind of thing. So... Instead, the lesson he learned was, I don't know, social justice and placate the players forever. And I don't think that's that's really worked. And I also think what's helped Goodell is that I don't think Goodell thinks he's a genius. And I don't think anybody else thinks he's a genius. So he's just very conventional and he doesn't try to do too much. I think Adam Silver presumes himself some sort of visionary who's going to reinvent the wheel. And that's gotten him into trouble because it hasn't exactly worked out that makes sense and but i wonder like at a certain point if you know as obviously we've seen the ratings issues like if there seems to be problems with the core business that could potentially be tied back to him like does he face any potential job security issues with the owners being like hey we might need someone to come in and and write the ship like granted yes he got a lot of good publicity like if, he, if that's the case, we're not going to hear about it until he's announcing that he's retiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You know, it's going to be pretty sudden. And hey, you know, this is the guy they wanted. You know, they preferred this to David Stern, who would yell at them. And I think they're getting a little impatient, but at the same time, uh, he's the devil they know. So let's maybe close this out with Joe. Joe from New Zealand. Joe from New Zealand. How are we? Cross for a baseball lockout question. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, we didn't get the Ukraine or baseball, which maybe just shows that people don't don't like depressing stories. But Joe, what's up? (laughs) 
Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Ryan. I'm real sorry, mate, but there won't be any baseball chat from me. Um, <laughs> you have some cricket chat if you want, but I don't really want to talk about the cricket right now because we just got hosed by South Africa, so that's pretty stink. <laughs> but you, um, You'll get an answer from me similarly along the lines to why do men care more about sports <laughs> than women? <laughs> well, Joe, actually, saying. handy little segue there because I just thought your answer there and, and and I apologise, guys, because I haven't actually been. I, I had a work meeting. I only just tuned in about fifteen twenty minutes ago, so my my points may have been covered. But Ethan, you had an interesting answer when you said, "Why do guys watch sports more than chicks?" And you said, "Oh, well, among other things, it might be because it's uh, you know it's a sort of a simulation of war." And um, and I thought, well, that sort of hints at something perhaps a bit deeper, and that's that mm. there's these sort of masculine and feminine kind of <laughs> kind of traits that um that you know it might not be popular to acknowledge right now but they're pretty real and and I wonder if it's possible that sports generally um appeal to men because they are a I guess a I don't know uh, a representation of a sort of masculine ideal mm. and and, and look, I don't have a dog in this fight. If the WNBA is going to be successful, good on them. You know, like, yeah. I, I, like if people are into it, good for them, you know. But yeah. I think it would be fair to say that it isn't exactly a sort of, you know, it isn't exactly like you've got the, the, the you know, the er sort of feminine there. You know, it's not like a mm. celebration of femininity in the, in the WNBA. And I thought, you know, just to maybe – Back up my point, I thought, well, what, what women's sports actually do? What's the biggest women's sport there is? Women's tennis. By a thousand percent, right? Yeah. And and it'd be pretty fair to say that, you know, like there, there is a certain, you know, there's an aesthetic there, right? Yeah. <laughs> women's tennis players seem to be pretty hot. And, I, you know, like I just wonder whether it's that might be a bit of an intractable problem for the WNBA to really cross over and, and achieve those sorts of, um, that sort of I, I, just, I just love taboo topics talking about them extemporaneously because I get this instinct that kicks into my mind where it's like oh fuck don't get fired don't get fired yeah, don't get yeah, fired yeah. you know you understand completely what Joe's saying right now but you have to you have to play it cool you got to be coy yeah, yeah. about it you got to be don't. you got to mystify it a little bit but then I remember <laughs> I don't really have a boss and you know maybe Ryan has something to worry about but I I don't I mean you're you're sort of insinuating that the WNBA is almost in an uncanny valley as far as you know what it taps into culturally and I would I would agree. I think it's a difficult problem to solve. I think it's something that uh, I don't think they're going to solve it, frankly. I don't think that they're ever going to thrive. I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's it's going to continue down this road for a while um, because perhaps the thing that they would do that would help successfully market them would be a selling of their souls that they are so, uh, you know, against in it. a way. You know, I think uh, if we're talking euphemistically and there's actually an amazing article by Chris Ballard on a league that preceded the WNBA, I think it was the WBL that um, kind of had a tragic end with um, a a very um, prominent player getting murdered, like shockingly. And Ballard writes about it and writes about what the league was like and how they had to drum up interest with the, the best player at that time. 
uh, God, what was her name? Machine Gun Molly was the nickname for uh, Molly uh, Boylan, I believe. Who, but they would also have her do calendars, and I think she called him cheesecake uh, sort of photo shoots and whatnot mm. to drum up interest, which she didn't want to do, but it helped sell the league. So, yeah, I think they're just not going to, I think ideologically, and, and, you know, just in terms of one's self-respect, I don't think they would go down that road, even if, yes, there would be an obvious way to market a, a sport, you know. Do they successfully for the record, on that? For, I think so. I, and, and for yeah. the record, I'm not really advocating for them to do that. You know, yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's a bit of a barrier to mass appeal. I guess the other the other path is, like, I guess college, women's college basketball well, is a pretty big deal. Let's, let's get into even more crazy taboo territory here. You know, we're talking <laughs> about where, where people, things people don't admit. I think that men's basketball players who are good-looking uh, more easily become mass appeal stars and are, are more marketable. But no, oh. like men, like straight men, don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit that that's even part of anything. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's like what um, Vince McMahon has always wanted in like a wrestler, which is like um, men who can attract women who other men are like, you know, a little bit jealous of. Yeah, uh, Sam Cassell, I believe, has only made <laughs> one All Star team. Deserve to make more. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Hey, well, Alan just, Houston just... made two. Very curious. <laughs> hey, well, on that, look, I've always had this long-standing theory that um, maybe part of, I've got heaps of reasons to hate on LeBron James, but like, I personally don't think he's that good-looking a fella. Whereas yeah. like Kobe and Michael and Alan Iverson and Steph Curry, for that matter, are all what I would call like quite handsome guys. It, and, it's and I think so it's translated taboo. cultural impact. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so taboo. I mean, if they even broach this, I feel like everybody would get super uncomfortable. But yes, I'm not really market- good at like telling whether a male is attractive or not. Not to. Brag. I mean, you know, everybody knows Michael Jordan was a great looking guy. Everybody knows that. Right? Come on, you're you're a person. Everybody knows. Well, uh, we're going to end on that one because I just we're not going to do Russia. You're going (laughs) to. Well, I was thinking about doing I was thinking about going down that particular route. Um, Okay, I mean, I'll I'll leave it up to Joe. Joe, do you want to talk Ukraine? You know, now that we're doing all the taboo topics, is that what you want? Joe? Why not? Why not? Yeah, we can talk some Ukraine. What's your take, bro? I would just recommend I think there's a fascinating um, interview. Uh, to watch uh, Charlie Rose pre-cancellation, obviously 60 minutes interview with Vladimir Putin from 2015. Uh, I would recommend that people watch it. Uh, you get, I think, uh, just an interesting perspective. It doesn't validate uh, what Vladimir Putin has done, what Russia has done. Uh, this is a war that didn't need to happen. It's killing you know, thousands of people. It's threatening potentially World War Three. Uh, and this is what sucks uh, about Twitter because everything gets very binary and it just becomes hate the bad thing. And there's no other uh, there's no other, I guess, conversation or nuance to it. I found it to be a very interesting interview because it's one year after uh, the Ukrainian revolution where the pro Russia leader of Ukraine was deposed by this massive protest movement that 
was uh, egged on at the very least, and Putin would believe orchestrated by the United States State Department that stuck in his craw, he was animated over it. And it's just so interesting to me that as an American, and Joe, you might have a perspective on this, my country is involved in things that are just at the heart of what other countries care about that none of my fellow citizens know about, or at least like 99% of people don't know about. And so it was just interesting to revisit it and see sort of the rationale. You could almost see the rationale for what just happened. And again, what just happened is bad, but you could see what happened in 2022 being explained to Charlie Rose. And it goes back to a theory I have, which is that sometimes we try to get too clever about people in power and their motivations. A lot of people just tell you what they're up to and why. And even if they're shifty characters, even if they lie a lot, they're going to reveal the thing that really grinds at them and the thing that really obsesses them. It's going to come out. You know, when it comes to Putin, for instance, um, you'll hear a lot that he felt humiliated. There's this psycho, this armchair psychoanalysis. He felt humiliated by the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and he wants those glory days back. Uh, Charlie Rose asks him about that. And he gets very animated and he says, no, the thing that animates me is that there were 25 million Russian people outside of the borders of the newly created Russia who couldn't come home. And the whole thing was a disaster. So his perspective, and I believe it's his perspective, perhaps to the point of insanity, is being a Russian nationalist. And, uh, you know, that is the thing that's obsessing him. You know, I think he wants the buffer state of Ukraine to be under his influence, but there's also an element of bringing millions of ethnic Russians into Russia. And I think sometimes when we try to psychoanalyze it and we try to get too clever, you know, and now I'm, I'm really jumping around, but it's kind of like when nine 11 happens and people go, well, they hate us for our freedom. That's not really an explanation. Like that's a flattering psychoanalysis of the person who did something terrible uh, to you, but it's not really an explanation of why they think they did what they did. So that's all I'm saying. Like you can find interesting insights into why this is happening from the perspective of somebody who's doing something bad. Again, I like taboo topics. I like getting into that. And again, I am not supportive of the war. Uh, did I just <laughs> bore everybody or was that halfway interesting? No, that was good. No, it, <laughs> I think that's a fair analysis of his motivations at least as I've read. Um, not something I'm like a scholar at or anything, but no. he he I'm thinks he believes like in this idealistic vision of Russia that like includes Ukraine. But the issue with that is is the people the of Ukraine don't <laughs> want that. They yeah. are a democracy and they lived the ideals that we aspire to at least in our literature and so like as far as like what we should do about it it's like very tricky because you do want to stand up for the people who are fighting for democracy and it's been wild to see like ukraine is vastly outnumbered both in people and resources but they the the, like they they want to fight so badly 
to preserve their independence to the point where like even people who are like wildly successful, like the Klitschko brothers who could live anywhere in the world in luxury, want to bear arms and fight for this Republic that they believe in. And that's been like really remarkable and eye opening to see. And if we ever got attacked, I don't think that our general population would like respond and with the same vigor. But um, it, it's also you 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 walk around and so, you, you know, I'm very online and I work for the New York Post. I look at the New York Post homepage 10 or 15 times a day at least um, when I'm working and it's all Russia. But then you walk around the Coronado Hotel in San Diego. It's absolutely gorgeous. A cheeseburger veggie plate and three cores lights is 86 bucks. And yeah. everyone is just like having the time of their lives. This isn't entering their consciousness well, at all. I'm from San Diego, and I will say it's almost like being in Hawaii. You almost feel like you're on an island if you're not away from everything everybody else is thinking about. But yeah, I don't know how obsessed with this issue people are. I fear it. I'm very worried about it in a way I wouldn't be but for Twitter. The Twitterization of this issue concerns me because yeah you want to help the underdog who is being abused uh i would say putin would say provoked i would say unprovoked but you don't want to risk nuclear war obviously and it's going to be difficult because i would i would believe generally that cooler heads would prevail hey cooler heads would prevail there's mutually assured destruction destruction cooler heads will prevail except we created this device this head heating device called Twitter. And people are going to see graphic images. They're going to be transmitted. There's going to be this urge to do something. And oh, so yeah, you can't trust any of the reporting, just as we talked about no. with the um, the Canadian truckers. Like how like right now the it's being presented as like, you know, the Russian people are not behind Putin in this. Like Putin looks silly. He's going to have to retreat. I have no idea if we're gonna if we're getting like propagandized or what. Though I like, sense we are. I, I sense yeah, that we I, are. I, I think he's if, gonna get himself at least a chunk of territory out of this if uh, if the betting markets are to be believed at least, Joe. Well, I don't know if any of you guys saw that. I think it was even by the U.S. Embassy they tweeted this meme out, which was uh, it showed like his Kiev in like 909 AD and his one church built his Moscow in the same year. It's a forest. And they went through, through sort of about 200, like four different um, sort of stages of history and Moscow is still a forest. And meanwhile, Kiev is building up to, you know, it's, it's building all these, you know, historic buildings. And, and, and the comment that I saw was this guy was like, you're kind of making, you're kind of making Putin's point a little bit for him there, which is that like, Mm. They see the Ukraine or Kiev as like just quite intrinsically. Maybe they see it as quite intrinsically Russian, and I think I think we've got to try to understand like people on their own terms, and we've got to be able to do that without having to kind of designate ourselves as being apologists for yeah. for them. You know, yeah, um, and that's right. Yeah. The, the I, other I, th- the other part about this. Sorry to interrupt, but like you go. It, it's important to realize that any economic sanctions we impose on them are worthless if we still continue to buy 
bountiful amounts of energy from them. And so, like, our due to a combination of the fact that, like, so with the with the like green um, energy, it means like that U.S. and Germany and lots of other like developed countries have ceased nuclear power capabilities. They've um, de-emphasized drilling and fracking. And that's made us collectively more energy dependent on Russia and the Gulf states. And it's like, I don't know, it, it, it's really tricky component on if we're really um, kind of like helping the well, world in aggregate by making those decisions and making us like dependent on Russia. I don't want to anything we impose on them have no yeah. teeth. I don't want to simplify it, but it almost seems like this whole thing is a referendum on a certain passive aggressive uh, way of being virtue signaling, whatever you want to call it. Like these displays that you put the flag. I wouldn't in your call avatar. it passive aggressive. It's aggressive aggressive. Well, no, I'm talking about what, I'm talking about our response. I'm talking about the way we're responding, oh, not okay. the way yeah, they're. Yeah. No, they're, that's aggressive aggressive, right? But what we're doing, we're not going to risk you know, which I, I agree with, don't risk nuclear war, but then you don't really have any tool of confrontation. So it just becomes, it becomes virtual. It becomes like kind of shunning and shaming. And, you know, we're not going to let like, players. Like a journalist protecting his sources endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it seems like we've become a little bit fake to what Ryan is saying and we don't, our money isn't where our mouth is on a lot of these things. And our bluff is being called uh, the generalized Western world's bluff, not just the United States. And with that happy thought, I'm going to go because I just got a text from my wife that my son is uh, <laughs> flipping out and tearing up his room. Uh, he, uh, he thinks it should be unlocked. That's what he thinks. You know, he makes <laughs> superstar demands. That's what he believes. But Great talk. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to all the callers. Thanks so much to Ryan for doing this. Fantastic insights as always. We will be back. I might do another one on Thursday. Uh, I will try to see about it, but we will definitely be back next week with Ryan. Take care, everybody. Stay Adios. safe. Adios. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah.